0: The court,
1: La Cour. Good morning, please be seated. In the case of City of St. John's and Wallace Lynch at al, Ian F. Kelly and Daniel Glover for the Appellant City of St. John's. Fong Fan and Tim Quirk for the Intervenor Attorney General of British Columbia. Philip uh, Hun and Alan Wu for the intervener, City of Surrey. Randy Christensen and Lindsay Beck for the intervener, Echo Justice Canada Society. Michael J. Crosby and Raymond uh, G. Critch for the respondent, Wallace Lynch et al. Shane Raymond, Connor Harris, and Leah Cummings for the Intervenor Canadian Home Builders Association. Brandon Kane, Jonathan Nematala, and Lauren Weaver for the Intervenor Ontario Landowners Association. Mr. Kelly.
2: Good morning, Justices. In my submissions this morning, I'll be referring primarily to the appellant's condensed book uh, and um, a little bit later, I'll also be referring in a little more detail to the decision under appeal, which is found in the appellant's record um, uh, in volume one. This is an appeal from the decision of the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal with respect to the issue of compensation or constructive taking of the respondent's property. It is the appellant's position that the applications judge correctly decided the legal issues in this case and held that the watershed zoning should be considered and applied in determining the value of the property. In our submission, the Court of Appeal erred in overturning that decision and deciding that the watershed zoning should be ignored or screened out. In so finding, there, the, it left the situation as being no zoning in place for valuation purposes, leaving a question of unrestricted use. Uh, in the um, condensed book, I have put at tab one uh, a, an aerial view of the Broad Cove River watershed, just to give the court some sense of what we were talking about. You can see it's a large area outlined in blue with the Lynch property in the lower uh, left hand corner. The area within the watershed is primarily uh, trees, shrubs, wetlands, and ponds.
3: I would like to intervene for a second. I have never received this condensed book,
2: It, it was served.
3: to say. Uh, I I mean I know a lot of these things. I am quite ann I don't think it's gonna but would, I just thought I should say so.
1: Would you like a copy?
3: If it's Here. convenient, it wouldn't hurt, I guess. <coughs> you go. I'm sorry that I've interrupted Mr. Kelly.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Justices. There are four primary grounds of appeal which I've laid out in our factum and which are summarized in the outline of argument. But underlying those four grounds of appeal are three primary factors which I think are important in this appeal. So first I'm going to very briefly summarize the four grounds of appeal, but then I want to discuss these three uh, uh, key issues. The the four grounds of appeal are, are relatively simple. First, this decision of the Court of Appeal is contrary to this court's decision in Annapolis. It's not the watershed zoning itself which caused the constructive taking. It was the application of the the decision in 2013 to deny any use of the property. And uh, this court makes that point in Annapolis that it's not the regulation itself, it's how it's applied where there are possible uses within it.
4: So, Mr. Kelly, um, if I understand your point properly, uh, you don't make a difference between an, an expropriation through a no- the service of a notice of expropriation and a de facto expropriation in terms of uh, the words, the beginning, uh, the beginning of expropriation proceedings that we find in the in the in the act.
2: Yes. Um, I'll come to that point later, but let me address that uh, now. Section 271 a talks about the beginning of the expropriation proceedings. And that makes perfectly good sense in the context of a statutory expropriation. Because what happens in a statutory expropriation is that a decision is made to do some project which is going to require the acquisition of a piece of property. That
4: I understand for a statutory expropriation, but does it make such good sense for a de facto expropriation?
2: It does not. The point guard principle, if it has any application uh, at all in constructive expropriation or constructive taking, must be very limited, and it's hard to see that it really assists at all because in this case, it is the taking that triggers the, the the it's the decision to allow no uses which triggers the, the the constructive taking and those two things are simultaneously they occur at the same time so a good example is Dell in which the decision was made some years earlier and the property then really couldn't be the, do, anything done with it until uh, the notice of expropriation was served. But that really doesn't apply in the context of a constructive taking.
5: Mr. Uh, Kelly, what, there's no basis for compensation at common law. We, we accept that, mm-hmm. right? There's no... Uh, Agreed. So the basis of a compensation, as I understand it in this case, flows from Section one a Correct. Right? So um, it is to be applied uh, mutatis mutandis to a constructive expropriation. Is that...
2: Is that fair? Um, it, one has to determine the, the value, the existing use value. That's what Section 271A well, requires. You've
5: highlighted in your condensed book paragraph 71 of the compensation decision, which fixed the date, the yes. valuation date, as being the date of the letter. So, uh, which I, I think is... And, and that's,
2: the, that's what the Court of Appeal decided in the expropriation decision, that it was February 1, 2013. Yeah.
5: so that's the valuation date. So yes. now we have to get to value. So we look at Section 21, 271A. In fixing the amount of compensation to be paid under this act, the Board shall act in accordance with the following rules. And those are the rules that we're being asked to interpret and apply, Correct. correct. The compensation shall be an amount based on a fair market value of the land and then on the existing use value at the time at the beginning of the expropriation proceedings. So fair market value, valuation date is the existing expropriation proceedings, which we know now is, according to the Court of Appeal, is February 1, 2013. Exactly. And then the last part says, and no account shall be taken of the compulsory acquisition of the land. That is really the codification of the Point Gord rule, the no scheme rule, right? Correct. So that's, that's, that's all we have to do is to interpret that. And you're saying Point Gord doesn't apply. Well, it, it does apply insofar as uh, it's codified and no account shall be taken of the compulsory acquisition of the land. It, how it's applied, there may be debate about, but that it is applied I don't think can be debated because the statute directs us to apply it.
2: Right, but its, it's application is very limited because these two things take place simultaneously. The, the, the decision and the taking, which is essentially what the Court of Appeal decided in the expropriation decision in 2016. Yes. And the, I, I'm going to come to this as the, the second of the two points that I wanted to make as the key point, but let me raise it now. When you go to the Waters decision, The Waters' decision puts the Point Gourd principle in context. The the first key point is is the principle of equivalence. That is what the, uh, the, the property owner is entitled to. He's entitled to the fair financial equivalent of the property. And if you go to the Waters' decision, you'll see that discussed at paragraphs 4 and 15 And then, in particular, I want to take you to paragraph 61. This is at uh, tab um, 8, Justice. And, and again, paragraphs 4 and 15 deal with the equivalence principle. And at 61, the court says this in the yellow highlighted section. What, then, is the purpose of this principle? Talking about the Point Gord principle. Its purpose in separating value to the owner from value to the purchaser is to forward Parliament's objective of providing dispossessed owners with a fair financial equivalent for their land. They are to receive fair compensation, but not more than fair compensation. This is the overriding guiding principle when deciding the extent of a scheme. And then the court goes on uh, at paragraph 63 and lays out a group of uh, limitations in how one should apply it in determining value. So the point out of this is that the purpose is of looking at Point Court is to get to the proper financial equivalent. And
6: that's right, and, and the extent of the scheme which frankly, that's what the Court of Appeal and the application judge disagreed on. There's a feature of your case that you're, you're still in your introduction that, that, that perhaps you can explain to me. So the, the case came to the application judge as a stated question of law. And yet you, you and your friends didn't present her with an agreed statement of facts. And the, the Court of Appeal goes into this in its obiter at the end of its judgment. So the application judge was in this odd circumstance where she had to, basically, on the basis of 271a, codifying Point Gourd, wondering about what's the scope of this scheme? Does it do no reasonable uses, they Does a the guillotine come down on February 1, 2013? Does it extend back? to 2011 when the city verbally said no development or does it go even further back to to, to encompass the the regulations of 94 or maybe even to 1964. But she, she had to figure these things out and then the Court of Appeal went over her findings on the scope of the scheme. All of which seems to my ear, but you'll correct me on this, to stand beyond the normal purview of what a a debate on a stated question of law is. It sounds like there was a debate on the factual setting for the application of Point court. Do you see what I mean? And, And that's what the Court of Appeal at the end of its judgment kind of in its obiter throws its hands up with this and they say, basically, we had to, 134, we had to, reach conclusions amongst other things as to the scope of the expropriation scheme and thus make findings that one would ordinarily characterize as maybe mixed fact and law or fact. How how did this happen and how how does that affect what we've got to do?
2: Well, the, the matter had already been before the Court of Appeal already. And in that record were the basic facts then augmented by the various statutory provisions as to how this came about. So the the basic factual uh, outline is not itself contentious. It's then what conclusions do you draw from that as to the application of the Point Gord principle or more, in my view, the, the proper so, application so of the equipment. I understand
6: principle. that, but would you say that the Court of Appeal overstepped its role by um, considering whether the extent of the scheme that it would igno- ignore under Point Gourd or 271A as it codifies it, um, extended to the point where it did extend to?
2: Yes, uh, I, I, I say that the Court of Appeal is wrong and erred in law in doing that, the, our submission is that the applications judge correctly addressed the two legal issues which determine this case and the Court of Appeal erred in what they then did. And I'll, I'll take your Lordship to, or your Justice to that provision in the Court of Appeal's decision. I'd like to show you first what the applications judge did and then why we say the court of appeal erred, if i may
7: and i'd just like to ask you at some point if you could address um the, the court of appeal at its page 30 and 31 um, enunciates how it's applying the point Gord principle it, it articulates what it calls general principles from the jurisprudence do you take issue with those principles, or do you just take issue with how the Court of Appeal applied them to the trial judge's reasoning? Or to um, the application judge's reasoning, I, me. I don't
2: take too much issue with those. I think where the Court of Appeal then really goes wrong is uh, beginning uh, at uh, paragraph 110, and then in particular into 113, uh, and um, that's, it 's worth looking at what did the applications judge decide, and then let 's look at what that, what that issue is so the, the first point I wanted to, wanted to make was the equivalence principle. The second point was the the fact that the point gourd principle is not the be all and end all it 's a useful tool in in, a, in trying to determine what the value is. And that's what the Waters case says. When you look at the limitations that are in waters, they're all about how do they help us get to the right value. And then the third point that is, I think, important is to understand how and why the watershed zoning came into existence and then what flowed from there. And in the early 1990s, 1990, 1991, the uh, government of the province of Newfoundland decided to, to reorganize the municipalities on the Northeast Avalon. So the first thing they did was enact enabling legislation. Then they enacted a whole bunch of regulations to give effect to the elimination of certain municipalities, and that expanded the boundaries of the city of St. John's. Then under the Urban and Rural Planning Act, the city was required, it is mandatory, to then prepare a municipal plan for the entire city with new development regulations for the entire city. So this that process which brought the watershed zoning into existence was the first time that this property had ever been zoned by the city of St. Johns. It was a new addition to the city. And what what is demonstrable from that is that this was a general Uh, purpose land use regulation it was not in any sense targeted at the Lynch property or the acquisition of the Lynch property and that's a fundamental point in looking at this so when we
5: so presumably before it was became part of the city of St. John's resident it was zoned to allow for residential development
2: no it it, it was never was it, it never was it was it was part of Metro board which had a loose regulatory structure. And before Metro Board, it, um, it was, you're back into the very early 60s when it was unrestricted use. So it, the first time it really gets zoned is in 1994 um, uh, when the city enacts the development regulations. And those regulations then have to be approved by the minister to come into effect. For what was the permitted use? The permitted use, it came under Metro Board's control. Metro Board had a policy of limiting use in the watershed as well, but there's nothing in the record to to indicate uh, 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 any particular zoning. And there's no indication that Metro Board ever had a particular zoning for this property as is now, as is required now by the Urban and Rural Planning Act for the city of St. John's. If you went across the
5: street, if you go to the other side of the street or to the other municipality, the neighboring municipality, then you could engage in residential development.
2: Right, and and that came out of the fact that when the town of Paradise was created in 1973, there was about a 10-year period when the town was... Uh, allowing development in the watershed, if, if you look at the plan again you 'll see that there 's a, a number of small areas where the watershed boundary and the municipal boundary don 't overlap, and that process was stopped by a series of agreements beginning in one thousand nine hundred and eighty three and then continuing to, the most recent one is one thousand nine hundred and ninety seven
5: presumably land in paradise is worth more than uh, the land the, than the land
2: were. in the, the watershed so there 's a small amount. of of watershed which has been lost because once it's developed into residential housing, then the water drains out through storm sewers and is lost, so protecting watershed is vitally important both in terms of quantity and also maintaining quality of the watershed. So the the property was then zoned for the discretionary use for agriculture, forestry or public utility uses And as you see in the regulation, an environmental impact assessment is required to be done, et cetera. Now.
6: And they had just to, a a, a property owner had to, in order to obtain that discretionary permission, they they applied for permission and then applied for the the discretionary authority to be, to to allow them to go ahead and to. allow them to to go ahead.
2: right. Right.
6: And, and in the in the area, what were these discretionary uses exploited well, during?
2: That that kind of comes to a point that I'm I'm coming to. What what you will see. Let me take you to the uh, court of appeals decision, uh, which is at tab twelve. We'll see how this developed, because at. Tab uh, 12, if you go to paragraph 20, you you see the chronology. At paragraph 20, the court lays out how the municipal boundaries were expanded. And note the uh, the last line or so. The land then also became subject to the general land use zoning powers of the city. So that's when the boundaries are expanded. So then the plan was done, the regulations were done and paragraph 21 summarizes what that is. After that regulation came into effect, the the province and the city then engaged in a comprehensive watershed planning study. And that study was then adopted by, uh, by the city and the province in 1996. So several years have gone by since the watershed zoning came into effect. And at paragraph 23, the Court of Appeal summarizes that in the the following paragraph. The policy document also, so this is 1996 from paragraph 22, the policy document also recommended the practice of not allowing further urban development within the protected watershed in order to protect the water supply is appropriate and should continue. And if I can just stop there urban development is residential commercial industrial etc so up to this point in time the practice would have been to allow agricultural forestry public utility uses their power lines for example subject to environmental assessment and that the long term intention is to revert the areas back to natural pristine conditions as opportunity and funding permit so that that's, that's what the concept was beginning in 1996 now it's worth looking this is a summary by the court of appeal and it's worth looking actually at that document because you get an even better insight into uh... the difference between urban and non urban uses and you'll find this at, at tab five and this is the uh, part of this document was attached by the court of appeal to its expropriation decision in 2016. And you'll see on uh, the document number, page five, it's Bates number 14 in the book. It says in 1995, this explains how this plan was done. And if you come over to the next page, this that says the policy document produced under this mandate. So this is section 2.5, which you'll see referred to from the policy document of the plan. And it says, the practice of not allowing further urban development within the protected watershed in order to protect the uh, water supply is appropriate and should continue. This practice should be extended. So now it's after 1994, after the the zoning is in effect for several years. They are talking about extending this to non-urban land uses, particularly farming practices. Existing suburban development that has occurred along roadways, as well as existing farming areas and recreation camps, may remain. However, they should not expand. And the long-term intention is to revert these areas back to natural, pristine conditions as opportunity and funding permit. So. You you have an existing policy of not allowing urban uses from the 1994 uh, watershed zoning, and that is then getting extended uh, by this to encompass some non-urban uses to be restricted as well. But even this document is not a complete taking away of all uses of the property because you can see back On page four, they talk about balancing conflicting interests. And you'll see uh, lower on page six, a reference to preparation of forestry management plans within the watershed. So it still contemplates uses of the property. The other thing to bear in mind on the use issue is the historical use of this property. David Lynch acquired this property for agricultural cultivation in 1917. He was a cooper. He built barrels and farmed the land, and the, the Lands Act required him to clear a certain amount and cultivate it within a certain period of time. So the, the process and the zoning, which came into effect in 1994, was also consistent with the historical uses of the property.
6: So your friends say that there's a, the scheme, the scope of the scheme extends backwards to a more a longer process of watershed protection that they 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 take it way back. They cite to us a 1974 interim report of a commission of inquiry uh, that that raises the possibility that this kind of uh, regulation uh, would be tantamount to expropriation and point to a a broader purpose of of the uh, authorities to protect the land and uh, to protect the water through the land that that would uh, suggest that the 2013 date is far too late to, to 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 represent the the that portion of the scheme that should be ignored under the kind of point gourd idea.
2: But. For constructive taking, the question under Annapolis is, are there uses that could have been approved, and when was the decision made not to approve any of those uses? So your
6: point is that the reasonable uses of the land, including agriculture, forestry, and public utility, continued right up until, I don't know, the very latest 2011 when the city said no no and maybe even 2013
2: continued past the watershed zoning in 1994 that's the key timeline because that that zone that zoning is what's the the key factor in determining value and i I do want to come back to your comment about that report so it is between Sometime between 1996 and 2011, it appears that uh, the city decided to allow essentially no uses within the, the watershed. And so whether that's 2011 or 2013 or sometime a little earlier is really irrelevant because the question that, you, that is relevant here is do you screen out the watershed zone? And the watershed zone permitted uses and and it, it's demonstrable on the record that it's not until Sometime post 1996 that a more restrictive practice develops and it's it's actually the the Decision in 19, in uh, sorry in 2013, which is the operative one and Before I, I want,
6: that there was no taking I mean a before of-
2: that there was no taking And without a taking, there's no right to compensation. Mariner is a perfect example. Uh, This is the Beaches case that Justice Cromwell dealt with. And he found that, that there were still uses that hadn't been explored. So there was no taking and no right to any compensation. You have to ask, when did the taking occur? Because it is the taking that creates any right to compensation. And the Court of Appeal in the expropriation decision said there is, there is no taking until 2013. Now, Justice, can I pick up the point that, that you mentioned? Because I, I, this ties in ultimately to where I'm going with the Court of Appeal. The, that report that is referred to in my friend's material at tab three was a commission of inquiry report. It wasn't directed to the watersheds per se. It was the uh, original planning of the St. John's urban region which ultimately then gets replaced by the new scheme which comes into effect in 1991. And what it calls for uh, in terms of watershed protection is the possibility that if uses are going to be denied so that there's no reasonable use, there should be some provision in the Urban and Rural Planning Act for compensation. Well, it's interesting to know what happened with that. And if you go to the expropriation decision, which is in my material at tab 19, I'll take you to this in a couple of places. The legislature had enacted the Urban and Rural Planning Act, which had purchase notice provisions in it. And in 20. In the year two thousand, in the new urban and rural planning act two thousand those purchase notice provisions continued but section ninety eight of of the, that statute provided that the provisions did not apply when development is prohibited to protect a watershed so essentially and i 'll show you the statute in a minute there was a no comp- compensation provision enacted if there was effectively constructive taking involving the watershed. Now, the Court of Appeal then, uh, at paragraph 68, was then faced with the conundrum, because if it's the zoning that is the cause of the taking, then there may be no compensation. So what the Court of Appeal decides under the heading, should the city or the legislature compensate, the legislature enacted the City Act and improve the city's municipal plan and development regulations but the authority to expropriate is given to city council by section 105 it is the exercise of discretion by the city manager under section 104 d of the city act which led to the refusal to approve development this was for the benefit of the city in these circumstances it is the city which should pay the compensation so, the Court of Appeal got around Section 98 by saying, oh, no, it's when did the city manager exercise that discretion? Well, the only time it came before him was in 2013, and that's the point of the taking. And right now, can I also, while we're on this topic, take you to the Urban and Rural Planning Act provisions, which I've put in here at uh, tab. Uh, 7. And there are two provisions which are particularly relevant here. First is Section 5. And this is a statutory enactment of the rule in Hartel and Sioux Mill and Lumber that there is no compensation simply because of municipal zoning. And it says, a person is not entitled to compensation for a reduction in value of that person's interest in land or for the loss or damage to that person's interest in land resulting from the application of this act or a plan authorized under this act. So there's no compensation because it is zoned watershed. Then you had, and that's just a statutory codification of the common law rule, which is referred to in my material with Musqueam, Hartel, etc., And then you'll see the purchase notice provisions beginning at 96. And the, the test, I've highlighted it in yellow, is if permission is refused and that the land has become incapable of reasonably beneficial use. Well, gee, that's the same language as Annapolis. We've had such a provision already in existence. And then in 2000, if you turn over to 98, the the legislature enacted notwithstanding section 96 and 97, where development in an area is prohibited under this or another act, Oh, interesting, the City Act is part of this matrix, or law of the province or of Canada for the purpose of protecting a, a watershed area or for another environmental reason, sections 98 and '96 uh, and '97 shall not apply to the land. So the Court of Appeal got around that by saying, "Well, yes, but it's the exercise of the city manager's discretion under the City act, and we're going to allow compensation based upon that, and they sidestepped this provision. Well, okay, it's not
6: really sidestepping in the sense that I understood Section 104, what is it, 104 something four D, 4D, thank you, um, as these uses were discretionary uses, yes. right? So it was predicated on the exercise of discretion. Yes. So that the taking should turn on when that discretion was exercised. Which it's, is the 2013. Which is 2013. It's right. not so surprising. And there's a discretion. It's not, it's not so much getting around it. It's just rec- looking at w- how the law applies to but the facts.
2: There is a discretion, though, in the watershed zoning section. Those are discretionary uses. So if you were talking about that exercise of discretion, because it's, it's really the same, and it's this act or another act, you have this similar provision in the City of St. John's Act. So what the court was, was doing, I'll use, I'll use sidestepping, but they were saying, in effect, this provision is not going to apply because we're saying the city manager exercised his discretion. When did he exercise it? In 2013. And, and that's under the Expropriation Act. So we're going to, to uh, allow compensation. Then the question becomes, on what basis? Well, the answer then comes to, well, what's the zoning of the property? And the zoning of the property is the watershed zoning with these per- permissible uses. And that's what the Lynches had. They had property which could have been used, with the city's permission, for agriculture, forestry, public utility uses. That is what they lost. That's how the principle of equivalence applies. They are entitled to compensation for that loss. They never had property that was zoned residential. The the proper comparison per Waters is not the property in another municipality which is subject to a, a residential medium density zoning law enacted under its municipal plan and its development regulations and approved by the minister under that structure
6: the, the record doesn't show that this was a false promise the that you could develop for agricultural forestry and public utility uh, purposes um, right up until that, that there was a true discretion that that, that, that one could avail oneself of there, until 2013? I mean, there was. that's what, That's why I asked earlier about in the record, does it show that people were actually getting discretionary uh, permission to, to use the land in this particular way? Go back way?
2: to the section that I referred you to from the uh, watershed management plan in which there, there were some agricultural uses within the watershed, there was a park use continued still within the watershed those that obviously come into existence somewhere along the history of the property. And uh, uh, it's not until 19, excuse me, 1996 at the earliest when the uh, new watershed management plan is adopted by both the province and the city to further restrict uses. And up to that point in time, this is the quote from the, that the Court of Appeal relies on, the, the reference is the existing practice or the, the practice of not allowing urban development is appropriate and should continue. And that's the record, that's the, that's the, the record, that's the, the, the history.
5: Do we, so it, presumably valuation though, whether it's zero, $100,000 or $875,000 is going to be determined by the board.
2: Yes, ultimately, it is, but what the board was asking in the stated case is, okay, it's existing use value. What is the existing use zoning that we are to apply? Is it uh, uh, the zoning that is currently in place in the city, which is the watershed zoning?
5: Which would mean mean the compensation is zero because that's just...
2: No, it, it, it doesn't mean the compensation is zero because the Court of Appeal in the expropriation decision decided that they were entitled to compensation. So I'm not, I can't come here. Okay,
5: so you're not saying it's gonna be, so it's not gonna be zero, you're not saying now it should be zero? No, uh, because because that's already decided.
2: That ship has sailed, we asked for leave, but we, we didn't get leave. So that decision is binding on the city and it's binding on the lynches. So they are entitled to compensation for the value of the watershed property. And the record indicates that that's, there's an appraisal at $105,000, as contrasted with what would happen if, instead of the watershed zoning, it is to be the value is to be determined based upon the neighboring municipality and the zoning in place in the neighboring municipality, which is completely contrary to the third point in Waters, which says. You need to be very careful if you come up with a value which is not in accordance with the values of adjoining properties. Well, what are the adjoining properties here? They're not the properties across the street in another municipality. There's what happens if the city of St. John's allows, for example, agricultural use on the property next door. That property will then have no constructive taking, it will have an agricultural value. If they allow a forestry lot, that's the value that it has.
4: Mr. Kelly, you referred to the fact that you are bound by the expropriation decision. And I have a question. I don't know the answer. So in the expropriation decision, it was decided that the watershed zoning was part of the scheme of the expropriation.
2: No. It was
4: not decided that?
2: No, you're... are talking about the expropriation yes, decision. I'm talking
4: about that decision in
2: 2016
4: Yeah, it was decided that the watershed zoning was part of the scheme of the expropriation No,
2: well, the, the, the court decides in 2016 when the when the taking took place and that they are in, Entitled to it. There's really no Development of the concept of the scheme, but
4: they said there was a process in the expropriation decision they said that the constructive taking maybe ended in February 1st, 2013, but it started somewhere. They are talking about a process. They said expropriation de facto, it is a process.
2: Yes, it can be a process, but what the court in the expropriation case seems to have been discussing is the various applications that, uh, or inquiries that the lynches had made through 2009, 2010, 2011, culminating in the decision in 2013 and that that decision that application that the Lynches eventually made was not for agricultural forestry they applied for residential development which wouldn't have complied with the zoning All right now um, my time is moving on so i want to do two things i want to take you quickly to the applications decision, and then to where I think the Court of Appeal kind of went went wrong here. If if you go first to the applications decision, which is at tab uh, uh, 11, you will see that the applications judge, Justice uh, Chater, addresses the two key issues. The first is the the causal link, like what is the, the cause of the taking, And she concludes, it's not the watershed zoning, but the decision that follows subsequently. And that's discussed uh, at paragraphs uh, 42 through to 44. And I'm not going to take the time to read it, but I urge that on the court. And then she addresses the secondary question, which is, was this a general purpose land use bylaw or was this directed at the acquisition of the Lynch property. And looking at the historical record, it's a no-brainer. This is clearly a a general purpose bylaw covering all of the city of St. John's. You can look at cases like Kramer and Wascana Center and debate which side of the line it fell on. But in this case, the facts are absolutely clear that this was not done to acquire the Lynch property, it was part of a much broader rezoning scheme for the entire city. Then, so that's what the the applications judge decided. And let me take you next to the Court of Appeal in the compensation decision. And I've got part of it at uh, tab 12, and then I'm I'm gonna take you over to volume one. At uh, paragraph 20, you'll see that the court is explaining again the history, the 1992 boundary expansion. And notice what the court says in the last line. The land also became subject to the general land use zoning powers of the city. So that's, that's what the city was then doing, general land use zoning. And then to paragraph 21, they adopted the uh, regulations. I took you to paragraph 23, and if you come over to paragraph 28, the court summarizes the effect of its expropriation decision. And up to that point in time, this, this, this is a good summary of what the court had decided. And then if I take you next to paragraph uh, 110 in the Court of Appeals decision, which is at tab three in volume one, the court asks the question: well, did they did the trial judge get this right? And they look at three factors. One is the interconnection between the development regulations, the watershed policy, and the City Act. And if you come over to paragraph 113 and you come down to uh, about one, two, three, four, five, six lines down, it begins, it is clear from the earlier studies undertaken by the city in relation to the management of the watershed that the policy was developed, that the, the policy was developed was to use the powers under the City Act in a manner that was complementary to the powers contained in the city's municipal plan and zoning bylaw, the ultimate intention being to revert the areas back to natural pristine conditions. Policy document at 2.5. I want to stop there. The court now calls it an earlier study. It's not an earlier study. Everything they're talking about here is a later study, it flows after, it's the 1996 study. The complimentary part, my learned friend Mr. Crosby has actually put in uh, his condensed book and it's an extract from the 1996 uh, policy. The court goes on, as subsequently determined by this court in the expropriation decision, achieving reversion of lands to natural pristine conditions effectively meant refusal of all development and use, which amounted to de facto expropriation. Correct, but that doesn't come till, we can debate whether it's 2011, 2013, but it comes after the watershed zoning. Expropriation was therefore the logical result of the zoning policy that was adopted. What zoning policy? It's not the logical result of the watershed zoning, the regulation. It may be argued that it's the result of the subsequent policy and plan, et This well, is
8: This is a, an amusing point at least for me, we're now reviewing the Court of Appeals findings of fact for palpable, and overriding error when one questions whether the Court of Appeals should have been making its own findings of fact.
2: And and to the extent that there's factual findings, the the, the facts themselves are not an issue, save that they've described this as an earlier study. The only earlier study in the record is the one that we spoke about with Justice Casareer earlier, which is the 1974 planning for the whole Avalon. It's not not a watershed planning document per se.
6: Is it possible that this policy that's alluded to is the same one that the Court of Appeal refers to in paragraph 116 when they cite Paul Mackey, the deputy city manager of public works who deposed, the city always had a strong policy of enforcing the prohibitions and restrictions on development and the protected watersheds in accordance with the provisions of the city
2: act. Right, and that's, that's the bit about what was the city doing pre-1996 or precluding urban development. And we know that because that's what the plan talked about in section 2.5.
6: Right, well, so to get back to this, Justice Cote r- raised this idea of a process, is the, the specter of a process that somehow reached back in time that the the true colors of the city was to impose a, an environmental protection regime on this area but that had the effect, maybe the purpose too, of, uh, precluding reasonable use, even the promised reasonable uses, uh, well prior to 2013. I mean, I think that's the, that seems to be what the one Court of Appeal argue, had it on its mind.
2: One can argue, Justice, that it's prior to 2013, because we, you know, we have in 2011 uh, the development officer saying, no, it must be kept in its pristine state, et cetera. And one can go back and look to the watershed management plan, In 1996 but even that on its terms does not preclude all reasonable uses of the property so somewhere between 1996 when when did it become full-blown you can only speculate but it's curious that in 2000 the no compensation provision comes into effect so it's probably sometime after that provision comes into effect one would speculate but that's speculation there's nothing in the record but what is in the record is it's 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 later than 1996 and it's not the watershed zoning now I just want to finish the point on 113 because I do want to come to 116 expropriation was therefore the logical result of the zoning policy but it's not the logical result of the zoning bylaw the zoning regulation that was adopted but this is what the court says and the manner in which it was applied well that's what Annapolis says you have to look not to what the bylaw says when you have the possibility of exemptions or discretionary uses you have to look to how it was applied well it was applied in 2013 because the court of appeals said so in the expropriation decision and then the court then says, it is not hard, therefore, to infer a causal connection between the adoption and application of the watershed zoning regulations. But it's the application that is the issue. That's what Annapolis says. It's, it's, it's applying it. And it's, that's what Mariner says. And it's interesting, that's what the applications judge held correctly. And curiously, in this decision, it predates Annapolis, there is no mention of the point from Mariner, which is the same as Annapolis, that you must look at the application when there is a, a provision that allows particular uses with, a, with a, that might prohibit particular uses, but you can have exemptions, uh, licences, etc. So,
5: and, and even accepting, but even accepting what the Court of Appeal says at paragraph 113, I guess your point is. Uh, you would still need uh, evidence that any application for agricultural utilities uh, Forestry would have been refused I, that, that that's, the, that's the missing piece So even if they're right you'd need that other evidence and there is isn't. I, there.
2: I would agree okay. and and then I want to take you to, to uh, paragraph 116 justice because at paragraph 117 the court of appeal points to this as being relevant information that somehow the the applications judge overlooked well with the greatest respect to the court of appeal what this what the city is laying out in its affidavits here is in fact correct and it is not correct simply because it's what the city does it's correct because it's what the law requires you have two statutory provisions. You have the City of St. John's Act and you have the Urban and Rural Planning Act. Once you zone under the Create a Municipal Plan and zone under the Urban and Rural Planning Act, that can only be changed if you then go through a new zoning process. The city is bound by that just as much as property owners are. So when the city exercises a discretion under the City of St. John's Act, It could not, for example, in the watershed, exercise the discretion to allow a residential property or a factory to be built, because that is contrary to the the zoning. You'd have to go back and have a zoning change. And that, in turn, requires changing the municipal plan, which is public hearings, et cetera, et cetera. So what the the court is saying here uh, is is, in fact, a statement of what is required by law, but it misses the point. The point is not: is there a connection between the City of St. John's Act watershed provisions and the Urban and Rural Planning Act watershed protections? Yeah, sure, those are related. The question which has to be decided is: was the the um, Enactment of the watershed zoning uh, bylaw, the regulation, a general purpose land use bylaw, or was it done for the purpose of acquiring the Lynch property? And the Court of Appeal never addresses that because they somehow come to the conclusion it appears that just because there's some connection between the City Act and the Urban and Rural Planning Act watershed provisions, that that's somehow a problem. It's not a problem. The city has two statutes, it must comply with both. Am I so,
6: offside in asking if there are a lot of people in the lynches' circumstance?
2: In, I mean, if
6: this is like a, a general circumstance beyond the lynches, who are not being targeted themselves but there's a, a cast of people in exactly the same circumstance as them, that the city's there, policy is designed to
2: there are other there are other property owners in the watershed uh, uh, of course the the court's decision in Annapolis is a new area of, of law for most municipalities <coughs> in Canada the concept of constructive in, uh, taking and how that impacts and one of the concerns for municipalities of course is how far does this go because if you take the position that, that compensation is to be, return, be determined on the basis of unrestricted use, uh, you end up with the potential for really interfering with uh, municipal powers and municipal, uh, the interests of public interest. And um, this court has got a very good track record uh, of ensuring that municipalities are uh, able to exercise the powers in the, the public interest. Can I ask I'm, you about I'm the...
8: I'm glad we've gotten a good report from you. Well, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but, but beyond that, I, I suppose to pick up on your point in a very general sense, that there is a sense of a, this is the bookend to Annapolis. Annapolis, I don't think it changed, I think it clarified, it developed. Uh, when a constructive taking occurs, this case focuses on where such a taking occurs, what is the basis by which compensation is ascertained.
2: And, and I, I would agree with that, Justice Rowe. If I can take one last uh, bit and uh, take you back to paragraph 57 of the court's decision, because you see where this where this goes, the the Court of Appeal takes this huge broad uh, interpretation then of saying well we must say that the the taking began way back in 1964. Well that frankly doesn't make any sense, that was a legislative provision way back in 1964, the city didn't have any involvement in it whatsoever. If you go all the way back to 1964, what do you have? You have unrestricted use. And this is what the Court of Appeals said about that, and it's a a correct statement of the law, I think. Paragraph 57, the concept of a scheme of expropriation must not be taken too far, however. If all actions by, say, a municipal expropriating authority using land use bylaws for general planning purposes, so general planning purposes were to be regarded as part of the scheme that ultimately leads to an expropriation it would lead to the absurd result that land use ins- restrictions imposed for general planning purposes would always be disregarded the result would be valuation based on unrestricted use the case law clearly rejects this idea and that's correct so when the court of appeal goes from through the first part of its decision where it lays out the history, makes this correct statement of the law and gets to the end and ends up in a position of unrestricted use. If the legal position is the law rejects that idea, you have to ask, was there something wrong with the reasoning that got me to the result?
5: Perhaps part of the reason the Court of Appeal went, on your view, astray is the language of causation and the malleability of applying causation principles, which of course, as we know, are always coupled with an idea of mitigation, right? Right. But really, uh, when you say, you know, but for, that takes you back to the state of nature effectively, right? Right. And so, here's the question. So perhaps uh, if one asks whether the purpose or effect in looking at the scheme is to say, the purpose or effect of the regulation or the discretion that's exercised, is to uh, effect the expropriation or to make the expropriation, that might be a less malleable standard because it looks says purpose might be relevant, yep, is the effect of this, but it also, at the, at the level of the question, kind of screens out general purpose regulations. Okay. Because So that may be why in the language of causation may go too far, but I can ask you a factual question a paragraph in your in your picture a tab one is the blue everything the, what you've said is the uh, Broad Cove River watershed is that everything is that coextensive with the regulations?
2: Is it yes? That's the.
5: That is the. the, What's uh, defined? There are other
2: watersheds other than the Broad Cove River watershed. There's the Windsor Lake watershed. There's the Petty Harbour Long Pond watershed, which also come under these uh, same rules and restrictions. And it's the blue that uh, outlines here. This actually, you'll see at the top, feeds into Windsor Lake. The water from the Lynch property and all these other areas flows down to Little Powers Pond. There is a pumping station on Little Powers Pond which augments the water supply over to Windsor Lake. There is of course a water treatment plant on Windsor Lake. There's some suggestion in my friend's factum that you know, somehow this is all about avoiding building water treatment plants. That's not correct. Proper watershed management and uh, water, uh, source water protection is a part of what's required. And My time is up. up. Your time is up, but
1: Justice Coté has a final question.
4: I've been waiting
1: (laughs) for a long time. All right, there are two more questions, and I'll just ask you to answer the question directly. So, Mr.
4: Kelly, I just want to ask you a question. The question raised at the Court of Appeal was to decide whether the existing zoning should be ignored and the value determined as if residential development were permissible. We know that the answer, a part of it, They said uh, the existing zoning should be ignored, but they did not answer uh, the value determined as if residential development were permissible. Do you see a contradiction in this refusal to answer that question? And uh, the rationale of the decision of the Court of Appeal? I'm
2: absolutely puzzled by those paragraphs. Uh, I don't have the paragraph number. I think it's 126 or 128, Mm -hmm. where the, the court says, well, maybe there are other things other than residential, but it, it makes okay. no it makes no sense. One of the waters principles is be careful if what you're being asked to engage on is something which is unrealistic. Well, if you're to if the question is not we're going to apply the watershed zoning, then it's, if it's unrestricted, then it's unrestricted. So you get the highest and best use, which we would agree is residential. residential. But the court seems to be suggesting that you have to go back and look at what would have been the case in 1964 or 1970 something. And that makes no sense because that's a, that's, that's a rabbit hole mm-hmm. of where would okay. you ever get to. In 1964, this was just rural property. The highest and best use would be agricultural and the final question now
7: (laughs) Uh, mr kelly i'd like to take you back to the actual wording of section uh, 27.1 a and um just a a couple of clarifications there i guess the first would be that um, in a de facto uh, expropriation like this where it's the accumulation over time that crystallizes into there being no reasonable other uses and we have Justice Barry for the Court of Appeal, saying that um, it is going to be as if February 1st, 2013 was the date on which there was an expropriation notice given. That's the way he phrases it. But I have some uh, a question for you. What does beginning of expropriation proceedings mean in a de facto? It,
2: it, it doesn't, in my submission. All right. Be, because that is perfect language in a statutory expropriation. Dell is a perfect example where there may be years between the announcement that the municipality is going to build a hockey arena and the expropriation of the land for it. But in a constructive expropriation, the, the decision to refuse any of the permissible uses amounts to the taking. So they're simultaneous events. Okay. So, so there's no scope for that within the, the concept of constructive
7: taking. Okay, so that when we're in 27, uh, one on a constructive taking, the compensation shall be, and so then is it based on fair market value, because the existing use value at the beginning of expropriation proceedings is not a possible concept? No. And then we have the um, next part, and no account shall be taken. No, I, I,
2: oh, I, so, we're, we're not agreeing. Okay, so,
7: so tell me how you read that, then. I
2: read it this way. Uh, it's based on the fair market value on, and on existing use value at the time of the beginning of the expropriation proceedings. There is only one time, and that is, for example, in this case, the date of the taking. I, I didn't mean to suggest that... That you could just read those words out of existence. My, my point is that, unlike Dell, where there's a, a pre-exist, a, a pre-period, there is no pre-period. Thank you, Justice.
1: Thank, Thank
0: you. you, you, Justice. you, very much. Thank you. Uh, Fong Fen. Yes, uh, Fong Fen for the Attorney General of British Columbia. Uh, Honorable justices. Based on the pleadings, I think we can all agree that the Point Gord principle is rooted in fairness and reasonableness. The idea being that an expropriated owner should neither be burdened by or benefit from the expropriation scheme for the purposes of assessing compensation. And as alluded to earlier, the core issue before you today is in the application of the Point Gord principle with the respondent landowner contending that the scheme should be defined broadly and the municipality contending that the scheme should be defined more narrowly. This key difference uh, between the parties is tempered by their mutual understanding that for some government regulation to form part of the scheme, it must have a degree of nexus or proximity to the reason for taking. The problem in the pleadings is that each party offers a different test for causation to support their respective view of compensation. And on that point, Honourable Justices, uh, BC says that the question of causation is somewhat of a red herring, because at the end of the day, that question is subordinate to the overarching objective of compensation, which is economic reinstatement. My friend described that principle as financial equivalence. However way it is described, the idea is that the expropriated owner ought to be restored to the same economic position that they were in prior to the taking, no more and no less. The traditional way to conceptualize economic reinstatement is through the lens of the reasonable replacement property. In expropriation law, we presume that an award, a fair award of compensation for market value, which is the primary head of compensation in most instances, that award allows an owner to purchase similar and reasonable replacement property, and be made no if they so choose, and be made no worse off by reason of the expropriation. Now, therein lies uh, an Achilles heel, or the Achilles heel, to the respondents' view of the scheme, uh, their legal view of the scheme. Yes, this court, the majority for this court in Annapolis, stressed effect over intent in determining a de facto expropriation. However, uh, de facto expropriation, and I would say the law of property in general, do not distinguish between a long-standing owner of property and a relatively new one. Both would simply be, for example, fee simple owners. And yet, if we take the respondent's view of the scheme to its logical conclusion, a new owner that purchases lands that are subjected to regulatory encumbrances, ought to be compensated as if that regulation did did not exist when they purchased that land, and this doesn't align with economic reinstatement. Honorable justices, economic reinstatement is the check and balance that protects against over or underpayment to an expropriated owner, and so. If after defining and then disregarding the scheme, the result is compensation that enables an owner to purchase a superior property to what was expropriated, then the result is wrong because that owner has received a windfall at the expense of the public purse. Similarly, if the owner is placed in a better position than their immediate neighbours, who are subjected to the same regulatory scheme, the same regulations, but who have not been expropriated, then the result is also wrong. Justices, in summary, regardless of how the point guard principle is applied, we mustn't lose sight of the overarching objective of compensation, which is economic reinstatement, or as my friend called it, financial equivalence. Thank you very much. Those are British Columbia's submissions.
1: Thank you. Um, Mr. Hun? Uh, We can't hear you. Can
9: you hear me now, Justice?
1: Yes, thank you.
9: Thank you, Chief Justice. Philip Wynn for the City of Surrey. Now, on the point of the application of Point Gord, the City of Surrey intervenes to say that the intent behind specific land use regulations must be considered when applying the Point Gord principle. Failing to do so could significantly impair municipalities ability and responsibility to regulate land use and deliver public infrastructure. Now, Surrey is one of the largest and fastest growing municipalities in Canada. In a dramatically changing city, Land that sits empty today may be developed over time in ways that are impossible for our elected officials to predict. The regulations they adopt today may also impact the uses and value of land in ways that they cannot anticipate. An application of Point Gourd that focuses solely on the effect of the regulation would chill decision-making. Every land use regulation can affect property values and effects-based test may leave elected officials unsure as to whether a general zoning bylaw will one day be considered as part of the expropriation scheme. And if such a bylaw might be disregarded when land is valued 50 years from now, elected officials may hesitate or be unable to acquire land for necessary public infrastructure. Regulations commonly restrict the development of land for sound planning purposes completely unrelated to any expropriation. As an example, Growing cities may designate some undeveloped areas as urban reserves, which means that owners are restricted in developing their land while community plans for the area are created. This prevents piecemeal development of individual properties and allows municipalities to plan urban neighborhoods efficiently and effectively. Under a broad or effects-based application of Point Gord, such regulations could be considered part of an expropriation scheme even though their intent is to foster development rather than prevent it. Now we say that a practical application of Point Gord requires a focus on whether the subject regulation under examination was intended to seek the specific advantage that the government eventually obtained through the expropriation. And this applies whether de facto or de jure. Both this court's decision in Kramer and as an example, the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in Windsor are good examples of how courts have focused on intent as the paramount consideration. In Kramer, this court held that municipal zoning bylaws restricting lands to, quote, public service uses were independent of a scheme to develop attractive public space on those lands, even though the zoning may have been conducive to that development. In Windsor, the court held that an earlier provincial policy statement that imposed Generally applicable development restrictions on environmentally sensitive lands was not part of an expropriation scheme of some of those lands for a nature park. Now our friends, the Ontario Landowners Association, suggest that intent is no longer material for constructive expropriation after Annapolis, where this court held that intent to take is not required for constructive expropriation. We say though that Annapolis was solely concerned with when a de facto expropriation will be found. It did not consider much less change the law on the assessment of compensation for expropriation. Annapolis certainly did not override the statutes that we say explicitly codify Point Gourd, that pro- prioritize intents with wording and language that refers to, for example, regulations made with a view to the expropriation. We say that Kramer remains the leading authority when it comes to assessing compensation and should remain so for the practical reasons I have addressed. In summary, an effects-based test alone does not assist in distinguishing independent regulations from parts of an expropriative scheme. Every regulation under consideration will have some effect on the use and value of the land. Intention must therefore be the paramount tool of discernment. Subject to any questions from the court, those are my submissions.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Christensen.
10: Good morning, Justices. Can you hear me? Okay. The constructive taking in this case was the result of efforts to protect drinking water on land within an identified watershed protection area. That context must be borne in mind when considering appropriate compensation. This court should be wary of excluding other regulatory measures from valuation merely because they are aimed at the same objective. If good faith environmental protection measures are retroactively deemed to be part of a scheme, there will be consequences in terms of government's willingness to take such action and their ability to pay for it. This will result in less safe drinking water and weaker environmental protections. Many of the written arguments submitted to the Court speak to how the Point Gourd Principle should be applied to constructive takings, but we submit the more important question is whether Point Gourd should apply in constructive takings at all to exclude prior regulatory measures. Applying Point Gourd to constructive takings is unnecessary unless prior regulations were made for an improper purpose. Reliance on the principle will bring confusion rather than clarity. First, its application presents the challenge of trying to identify the scheme. Second, the difficulty in identifying the scheme increases the likelihood of capturing good faith environmental measures, which do not themselves constitute takings and they are only brought into the scheme simply because they are aimed at the same objective. Third, it may result in a windfall to property owners at the expense of taxpayers and to the detriment of public health and the environment. I will speak to each of these issues in turn. Point Gord arose in the context of formal expropriations, which present no great difficulty in identifying the scheme. This is not the case with constructive takings. A constructive taking does not begin with a regulatory step or a decision that has the explicit aim of taking land for a public purpose rather it is judicially determined in hindsight based primarily on the impacts experienced by the property owner applying point guard in this context will result in other valid regulatory measures being excluded from valuation because of a subsequent regulatory step that happens years or even decades later Most challenges to government decisions must be brought under very tight timelines, such as 30 days for federal court decisions and three months for de jure expropriation claims in Ontario, which we note at paragraph 13 of our factum. Applying point gourd to constructive takings will invite the kind of administrative instability that limitations periods were enacted to avoid. Turning to my second point, Two types of regulation are particularly vulnerable to the operation of the Point Gord principle. Municipal regulation, as you've heard other interveners speak to, and environmental regulation, which motivates our intervention in this matter. Our written submissions describe how modern regulatory approaches for protecting drinking water and species at risk embrace a multifaceted approach, offering delivering safeguards through more than one statute and more than one decision maker. Such regulations are often designed for a graduated approach that increases stringency of restrictions if and when necessary. At some point, a subsequent measure may constitute a constructive taking. Those property holders may be fairly compensated if they meet the test for constructive takings, but we have serious concerns about judicial doctrines that would exclude an otherwise valid restriction from valuation merely because it's aimed at the same objective as the measure or decision that actually affected the constructive taking. Finally, the protection of drinking water or species at risk may fall disproportionately between neighboring properties because of locations of things like water intakes or groundwater wells. We submit there is no principled reason to exclude an otherwise valid land use regime that is still applicable to similarly similarly situated properties. Doing so will result in a windfall for one owner at the direct cost of the ability of governments to address other important priorities. Subject to any questions, those are the submissions on behalf of Justice.
1: Thank you very much. The Court will take its morning break, 15 minutes.
11: Court,
1: that's cool. Thank you. You may be seated. Yes, Mr. Crosby.
8: We'll
3: see. I, um, I was going to address facts mostly and, you know, tangential issues and Mr. Critch causation and tang- tangential issues and costs and that kind of thing. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. I have obviously been listening carefully and um, I, want to, I will try to respond to some of the things I've heard arising here that are obviously the, uh, the court's concerns. I wanted at the outset to, to clearly sort of state this kind of thing. That Mr. Critch and I are here to represent Wallace, Willis, Wilfred, Colin, and Reginald Lynch, who are victims of the expropriation actions of the city. These are ordinary Canadians, courageous enough to stand up against what they thought was a wrongful exercise of statutory authority concerning lands that they had inherited. This case has occupied 11 years of my life and it has occupied over 30 years of my clients' lives. They are the inheritors, as I mentioned, of a portion of a grant. They have 7.04 acres of a 15 acre property that their grandfather, David Lynch, obtained in 1917. They began their efforts to get the city to allow development of the land in the early 1990s. That's uh, part of the originating application in the uh, appeal record, Volume 3, Tab 13. Paragraph 32, and that's where I say 30 years ago that they started trying to do something with their land I also wish to say to the court because I've read Annapolis and I 11 years ago came across this idea and had clients come in with a problem I wanted to say that constructive expropriation has an important role to play in administrative law in this country without this principle and without constructive expropriation resulting in full and fair compensation, the Lynches will not be able to obtain justice concerning the city's use of their land by the application of excessive restrictions concerning the use of that land. Now, to start with, why did the city refuse the development efforts of the Lynches? Well, it's because they had a, an idea, a scheme, a project, and they had control over a water supply, so, uh, water bo- sheds, and water bodies. But anyway, so the key thing that went on was when, we, when they sought to, to do something with their land, they were told it had to stay in its natural state. Why stay in its natural state? Because the city wanted those lands to be a filtration. Many places have water filtration, and even as Mr. Kelly, uh, my learned friend here pointed out, there is some filtration that goes on at Windsor Lake, but it's largely chlorination. But then I digress. most water supply systems do not have a great natural area put aside. Around Lake Ontario, there's no big area put aside. Water is taken out of Lake, Lake Ontario and filtered. But in this instance. Uh, The city wanted lands to be a natural filter. They want you to not be able to take down your trees. They don't want you to open up your soil. They don't want you to use fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, or anything else. Why? Because farming or forestry would be completely antithetical to the concept of a natural water filter. They can't exist together. And that's why it was the practice And that's what the, that's what the, uh, the uh, city's uh, report on watershed, uh, done at the same time, essentially, uh, came filed formally at at 96, as Mr. Kelly says, but at the same time, the development regulations are being developed. So was this report being developed. But my point is going to be, be that, you know, it's to be a natural filter system. And that was the practice to not allow farming. Why? They had a discretion because, as I just said, it's antithetical. The two can't exist together if you want, which I like our water in St. John's, as a matter of fact.
5: Mr. Crosby. Uh, But
3: but my point is, is if you want that, you're taking someone's private land for what? A public purpose.
5: Mr. Crosby, your client's already won the right to compensation. We're dealing with the issue of value of the... Uh, Yes, well, I I am... (laughs) So can I'm I the ask most you a, one
3: as you're going to learn? But I am trying to go there and to say. So we have. So you. So you have. Can I can
5: I ask you? Has has your client's property ever been zoned res, for, to be allowed for residential development?
3: Yes, if you like, because there was a period of time when they had a crown grant, or their predecessors entitled, their, uh, they inherited it. But my point was, when, when it wasn't when, in when, any municipality, and they could use that crown grant, which was a fee simple restricted minerals not included they could use their land for any purpose they wish subject to tort law like nuisance or what have you and so eventually they did come into the as mr. Kelly alluded to a thing called metro board which was really metropolitan area board of st. John's who had a policy of following the same policies as the city of st. John's
5: and when was that what when was that
3: Forget the date now. That's not like like the 70s. I think
5: so that would be the last time your client's property was allowed to be Developed for residential development was in the 1970s
3: Yes, I mean as you know, it's when you go to do something that you discover What kind of zoning has got on the city didn't have this kind of formal zoning until it did it in 1994 and as you know when they came in with a zone for this area? They called it watershed they didn't call it agriculture. They didn't call it farming and agriculture or forestry or public utilities. They called it watershed. And guess what? It was a zone that had no legally permitted uses. In Newfoundland, you have permitted and discretionary and prohibited uses. So it had none. There's nothing the lynches when that 1994 zoning came along, were allowed to do, absolutely do, with their land.
4: Nothing. There was nothing, no, restric- no restrictions. Until 1994, or until the 70s? Well,
3: there were, because once they got under, uh, the, the city's, uh, City Act gave the city uh, a control, uh, an authority over lands in the watershed. So you have municipal boundaries, and you have, have watershed boundary, and they overlap, as it happens, in the location of Paradise, and actually, at St. Phillips is another one. But in any event, in the case of Paradise, the uh, the boundary between the city of St. John's and, and the town of Paradise is this Camrose Drive, which the lynch land front on. I was going to go through in a minute some of the planning documents that are there. Uh, but in any event, my point was going to be on the other side of the road, literally, is in the town of Paradise. And those people, by an agreement, are allowed to develop their properties as residential housing. And that's how it's zoned, because the road is a serviced road anyway so you got an, an odd thing when you look at the aerial photography where one side is <laughs> all housing now and the other side is in its natural state both are in that watershed but the city drew a line at saying no to anyone inside the city's boundaries being able to use their land but why is that of some importance cuz really and uh, trying to get back to this is about compensation so the principle of law here, as we've heard, fair financial equivalent, fair financial equivalence, full and fair compensation, whatever—they're about the same thing. So, what did the Lynches have before this scheme came along? And that's why it becomes important to sort of say, well, well, expropriations just come to some kind of policy thing going on—that leads up to any kind of an expropriation, and that. So, usually, you look to the notice of expropriation to tell you. what its purpose was, road widening, or a hospital, or some such thing. And then you can try and track back, because usually the notice only says hospital, and track back to when did that originate. Why? Because we've developed as a statutory interpretation for the principle of compensation, that you should get value to owner, not value to the taker. So you don't get the value of the lands as a hospital. I was before Justice Rowe, long ago, and a property on the town of Fogo Island, or the the island Fogo Island, and it doesn't matter, it's town too. But my point was gonna be, that was a hospital expropriation, and we had this issue come up then, and it was deemed that my clients were trying to take advantage of the scheme in what they sought for compensation. Here is the reverse. We're saying, well, this scheme came along and developed over time, as this natural water filter idea, they didn't want to allow farming, as I said, because it's antithetical. So, anyway, went back to what did I,
6: this, this antithesis between the discretionary uses permitted by the 1994 mm-hmm. development regulations? And, and w- w- where is this antithesis plain? Because it, it sounds like, to me, I understood that. Uh, after 1992 there were reasonable uses for the land that you just had to apply for, you might not get it, but the discretionary uses of the land were possible, agricultural, forestry, and public utility. But but the city wouldn't
3: let those things happen either, and why wouldn't they? And I'm saying why was because if it was farmed, then, then the city's natural filter would be eroded and wouldn't didn't exist then because you have opened up the soil uh, if you like. So the rainwater's not coming down in trees and shrubs and going through natural environment. It's coming directly down and maybe leaching out things. So this is why when you read the, the when you look at the uh, watershed policy thing there and why they affirm this should be the policy Was because that would be bad for the water supply if you're going to use it as a natural filter. They could have spent the money to build the same kind of filters that go on for the Ottawa River.
6: We're not not going to make a declaration that the city is mismanaging their their authority to.
3: No, I'm not. So what we
6: need to know is was there a reasonable use of the land? And when did that stop? And what can you point to that shows that it stopped? Well, we I guess I'm to th- pointing to the
3: fact that all the lands around the Lynch property, which is the aerial photography and things, are residential housing. And the city's own fact admitted that in the a- absence of this kind of th- th- other regulations, the, likely lo- the logical highest and best use is residential housing. The Lynchers are not claiming that they should get the value of the uh, water supply, if you like, because the city charges uh, water taxes, which are really a fee for water service, but in any event, it's not claiming we should get one hundredth of whatever that value is. That would be value to owner, and that wouldn't be right. They're not claiming this area should be valued as commercial land. There's no evidence this area is commercial. It's not in Dannyland or whatever it is further out, other places where there's a lot of commercial development. I guess the
6: worry is that they're we worry about whether they're asking to be exempt from zoning law that applies to everybody who lives in this part of the world right. That's that's what we're they're worried. i
3: asking so I don't see it as being asking mm-hmm. to be exempt and That's why I feel the Court of Appeal who put it back to the utilities board was leaving it open for the there to be evidence about what the likely you know, planning or zoning would be, and I, I think I cited Sternig case, or we cited in our factum, is one out of BC where they had a park, I think it was BC, they had a park zoning, they determined that was, part, that, the, the, that was a scheme, and they had to factor it out and ask what would this be in the absence of that zoning, and that's the same exercise I think that's going on here. What would the likely zoning be? And I, I, in our factum, we cited an idea that I found from the Law Reform Commission in the United Kingdom called a cancellation assumption. And I thought that's really interesting because if the scheme of taking didn't exist, what would be the situation? That's what they were suggesting, try a cancel. So even today, as a matter of fact, if the city feels this is too big a burden, guess what they can do? They can cancel this natural filter process, but they would have to. Uh, make sure the water supply is safe. Well, Mr.
4: Crosby Do I understand your position to say that your clients lost any reasonable use of the property? A long time before February 1st 2013.
3: Yes, and me, when, when,
4: do, when do you think they lost uh, any uh, reasonable use of the property? Well, that's a
3: question, sort of a fact finding on crystallization, which is a uh, terminology I think I saw in uh, Quebec case law in particular and, and uh, when did it crystallize? Well, we know
4: for sure. Yeah, we know it crystallized in February 2013 because this was the determination in the uh, expropriation decision. Right. But you seem to say that it was not even possible to uh, have other users on that property like forestry, agriculture because of the natural water, water filter that the city wanted to have
3: right, so when did this natural filter concept become solid or some crystallized, right? And that's why I, in the condensed book, I cited this segment from, it was called the, Hick, uh, Hick, uh, the Henley Commission on Great uh, Urban Government, this tantamount to expropriation idea. Why, well in 74, that commission rec- realized that this kind of restrictive zoning, was in essence expropriating and recommended there should be compensation. But in terms of your, your pinpointing, but but again, expropriations, if this was a hospital, so obviously some period of planning goes on before a hospital on Fogo Island comes into being, and so that would be part of the scheme. It would ex- those there would be things going on prior to the actual taking for the hospital,
6: but you're not suggesting it goes back to 1974 on the strength of this interim report, are you? Because if you read, even if you read the, so I'm at your tab three and reading the the reference to when are restrictions on land use tantamount to expropriation? It seems to me that the authors of the report are speaking in a kind of a speculative voice, worried about someday. Perhaps something untoward will happen that will uh, strip individual citizens of the free use of their land, which I don't know is doesn't strike me as the test uh, that's relevant to um, either disguised expropriation or the compensation that should flow from it. Um, and then it says the basis of their fears may be posed as a question: When are the restrictions on land use tantamount to expropriation? This is not evidence that we can, I mean, perhaps I'll pose it as a question. Is this evidence that we can use in the Supreme Court to antedate the scheme back to 1974, so it gobbles up 1994? it well, strikes me as rather fantastical as a claim.
3: I didn't invent the point and guard principle. I'm just trying to help us all arrive at yeah, what the, it entails. You, and it seems to me it's logical to say. But the taking
6: didn't go back to 1970. You're not suggesting the taking. No, but. No, so, but, so, so and if point point guard focuses on the taking and we say, well, we'll ignore what the taking was uh, the, uh, as part of the scheme. Uh, the scope of the scheme here is do, are you suggesting that it goes back to 19, 1974? Yeah, I,
3: I, I am suggesting that the roots of this scheme go back that far well, I mean, You know what so st. John's needs to, Every city has to have potable water and obviously the legislature granted rights to this municipality Over that control that water area and and so th- they developed a, a concept to have had us do it Keep the lands natural as a way to do it. That's why I'm sort of saying, so yeah, if you're gonna, ask eh, so like the hospital, how, how far, well, I don't know, It could be on the boards a long time, and indeed, would it be right for, for someone to say, my land became very valuable as possible clinics for this adjunct to this municipal hospital facility? Well, you'd say, no, that's trying to, you're trying to take advantage of the scheme. That's value to, that's you know, encroaching on the value to the taker who's got a hospital scheme. If the hospital scheme wasn't there, what would your land be used for, Mr. Crosby, or whomever, Mr. Lynch? And, that. and so that's why I'm saying, well, you have gotta say, well, what did they have? And we, have a long, we do have a long tableau here, but in the absence of this scheme, as I said, if they, the city announced today they're building a, fi- a water filtration full bore facility, not, you know, not just chlorination, let's say, then they wouldn't need these lands. And I think the city's concession is in that that situation, these lands would be like the rest of the properties that are there. That's what what the planning evidence would be before the Public Utilities Board. And actually, I'm thinking the city is uh, uh, admitting that. That reminds me of something I also wanted to address. So uh, I opposed having a stated case. I thought the Public Utilities Board is supposed to be a special tribunal. And they should deal with this. But anyway, in their wisdom, they decided, at the urging of counsel for the city, to do a stated case. So you're right, we didn't have a formal agreed statement of facts. That bothered me, too, in my objections. That's not all here, but it doesn't really matter to say. So what went forward before, and Justice Chater, to her credit, recognized that issue. And council, uh, I think, said, You have before you, Justice Chater. The, all the materials that were before the, uh, co- on the, the Newfoundland court on the original declaration decision, plus the appraisal reports uh, as part of that statement. So they, they, we treated that as being an agreed statement of facts. All that material, which was the basis of the original de- declaration decision, and then the, the kind of value reports of the two appraisers of the, each party,
8: What's in in effect gave to the the, uh, uh, trial division, I'll call it the trial division, was the record as opposed to a a stated case. Here's the record.
3: Yeah, Yeah. I agree. And the Court of Appeal didn't like it, neither did Justice Chater. But, so, you know, I mean, this was taking a long time. And so what, you know, I was trying, we were trying to get the case forward, go before Justice Chater and so on. So that's what happened. And parties all agreed to it. So in answer, what was the Court of Appeal? Well, that Court of Appeal was faced with this too. And, and so they looked They looked at it. And as I said, I think, and that's in our materials, it's interesting, it was a stated case. And I think the standard of review really, if it's a stated case, is correctness. You're not looking for a close answer. You're really looking for a right answer. So so the Court of Appeal, I think, would be right to review Justice Chater on that standard. But they also then pointed out that Justice Chater didn't advert to certain things, like the affidavits of the city managers and stuff, which basically sort of said that uh, the, the development regulations were designed to be consistent With the City Act provisions, I mean, that's logical, isn't it? They were doing a municipal plan. They had a water supply. They had a zone they called watershed. Why did it not have any permitted uses? Why? Well, because the city didn't want it to be used. But you're right. You could apply and ask, can I farm my land? And indeed, the lynchers did ask. They did offer to, to do, or uh, it would be fair enough. They did offer to do an environmentally friendly design. Would the city consider it? The city said, "No, no, we're not interested." Now, earlier in the scheme, who knows? You know, again, we don't have the application. But uh, 30 years ago, as I alluded, the lynchers tried and start, started inquiring. And in 2008, they even tried to say, well, "Would you move us out of St. John's?" and put us in paradise so we could be under that agreement that lets the lands across the street be developed as residential housing. Paradise is a massive subdivision really, or urban center to St. John's. That's a major thing, I would say. But anyway, any rate, so the, the city refused that. And by the way, I want to also point out that the application to the city that was ultimately turned down at the 2013 thing well, did ask for a zoning change and permission to do, and and ask about residential housing because all the signs were that was what the highest and best likely use would be, what what you would want. It didn't ask for the commercial development and that. So when we come back to the whole of this case, then it's about what is it the lynch's per se, lost by having their property expropriated because they're supposed to get compensation, that is the market value, and any Disturbance damages or injurious affection but all of the property was taken so there isn't really an injurious affection Anyway, what compensation should they get and then the principle that goes along is well You shouldn't get a bump up in value and you shouldn't be bumped down in value And that's what led to saying. Well, how far back do we go starting to look at what we exclude? And I think it's the, the 1994 citywide uh municipal planning exercise sure that was city-wide, but the actual watershed zone was in anticipation and part of complementary to the uh, the the city's watershed scheme or wanting a natural filter scheme so can that's I why go i don't back think it to... can
7: count can, can i go to the a uh, uh, point Gerd point um, uh, analysis, which is that if there is a, a de jure expropriation, right, one done in law, you can go back and you can talk about a scheme for a particular purpose. But the application of this notion of a scheme in um, a constructive taking seems to embrace any kind of regulation on the land because the constructive taking occurs after you whittle away and leave the land with no reasonable uses Um, so don't we have to think about this differently the scheme the no scheme aspect in a in a constructive taking and and what is wrong with saying as the court of appeal did that the Taking occurred when there was the removal of the agriculture, the forest, and the public utility. That's what constituted the taking. Why wouldn't that be the time at which you would say that was the use that the land was theoretically zoned um, uh, for at the time? When that was taken away, what they lost was land that could be used for. Those three listed It well,
3: couldn't be used for those three things without a discretion and the policy and practice was not to exercise the discretion, but a, a couple of points. I think I I feel rise in my view of this. So actually a constructive expropriation is better Than a notice of expropriate why the notice only might say cottage hospital and doesn't give any details about what led up to that whereas the declaration of of a constructive expropriation, or that could be by an order of mandamus that they should issue a notice of expropriation. But in this case, we went declaration. So that, that declaration has the Court of Appeals ruling as to what led to them declaring something. And you would have that in other kinds of constructive expropriations, which would be actually plainer. Then the actual notice of expropriation. So if you're
7: saying the beginning of the expropriation proceedings is, uh, what, 1974? Do you, was there value of the land in 1974? So it's interesting
3: because in all expropriations, yeah, you use a date of something, right? I mean, so the notice of expropriation, in my example for the hospital, might be in 20, you know, December 1st, 2013, but the, the, that, that expropriation was the culmination of a something. That's the date used to value it. Again, if you do a valuation on that date, they're getting the current market value. You know, what the market value at an earlier date was, uh, is, it, is it, it's sort of subsumed. Now I, uh, you could have disturbance damages caused by some kind of freeze. Right, that's sort of what Dell Holdings was about and therefore indeed that Dell holdings in fact is an example where expropriation is a process and you would want to look beforehand to see things that may be affecting and be part of the compensation so that's why in this instance it isn't disturbance damages that's being argued over it's when did this scheme start as an a- in an answer and i think therefore the whole of, the whole of the the kind of regime the city came out was all connected together and logically in our view of causation, and Mr. Triff's the going to scheme say more. is
7: connected together amongst itself to protect the watershed, but is that the same thing as a scheme that's directed or linked towards a, a taking that would occur later?
3: Well, I think yes, because things done in contribution and, and anticipation of the expropriation under the, kind of con- the point guard concept should be excluded and not either depress or improve the value of a property. And I think that's a sensible rule, by the way. And I accept the thought my clients should get what it is they would have had in the absence of that. If the city had uh, had built this full filtration facility and not created a natural land use zone that they wouldn't let things be used, what would have gone on? And I'm suggesting well, I think the evidence we, indicates it would have been residential. Sorry, Madam
8: Justice. No, but
7: we, we have the codification of that principle of fairness into the actual legislation, right, in terms of don't take into account. Um, so I think we have the fairness that's built in there. But what we're trying to talk about is is what is the scheme that we're we're talking about and what is its relationship, whether it's but for causation, connection, some sort of thing, with the actual taking that occurred and the type of taking that occurred? And so do you have any, it it just seems to me that if the scheme goes back to 1974, how, how how does that help the valuation for the lynches?
3: So what we're at, I mean, we have a valuation date, the data taking in the mind of the Court of Appeal, and it makes sense, was the date you got your, uh, sorry, the the date you were turned down. The useful thing in Lynch was, we did actually apply and get turned down. It can get more difficult, In in other situations where you're sort of just totally, you know, it's useless to apply, but but sticking with that But that so that's the date you would do your evaluation and then you would uh, You could argue about things like any disturbance damages and indeed the tribunal had had to deal with that or injurious affection As I said, I don't think it applies here and that but in any event So that's why I think though the you're asking really what what is it the lynch has lost and I'm saying In the absence of this scheme, they would have had residential housing, like their neighbors, across the road, and around them everywhere, and that's when I was gonna go through the aerial photography and so on. By the way, I just remembered something I forgot. I interrupted to say that I didn't have the, uh, the condensed book of the appellant. Apparently it was delivered to my agents, and I didn't have it. It came apparently, anyway, t- this morning or something. And I apologize, I, I don't, I, you know, I, th- we have had fair dealing throughout the piece, that kind of thing, and I wasn't trying to cast dispersions, only to be properly prepared and aware. But, uh, so that just popped into my head. I guess, uh, so, I'm, what I'm trying to say, I don't feel there's any windfall here. And the one who's trying to get a windfall is a city who wants to have it valued as farmland and they themselves even turned it down to be farmed when the lynch is applied, can we, what can we do? Could we farm it? And then, No, stay in its natural state.
7: So it seems that's to be there. a complicating enriched. fact here. I agree with you that that's a complicating fact here. But um, the zoning, at least, uh, uh, and a complicating fact that led to the conclusion that there was no reasonable other uses and hence a constructive taking. But in terms of the actual evaluation, why can't we take into account the other zoning um, um, the other zoning laws that existed in on February 1st 2013 well we, the logic of,
3: we are interpreting a statute which gives a right to compensation so this is interpretation of a statute yeah. and we've got to the point where we've devolved, Point Gord as a concept saying well you you don't get enriched by what it is that is being done for the public. why would that be because that's an Unfair burden on the public to be fair if you like but but similarly it would be an unfair burden on My clients if they have to fund the water supply because they don't get what their land would otherwise be worth in the absence of this Depressive restrictive regime. So that's why I think the logic of this is you do exclude the things connected linked with what it is the p- purpose was and the purpose is de- declared in the declaration decision and as I say I think that's even better than a notice of expropriation which may in fact often I see them I do a lot on expropriation just sort of say for cottage hospital and you don't know any of the background unless you start going looking which is what I what lawyers start doing I suppose to figure out how do we value what it is you lost? So, so I do think what they did lose here, and this scheme starts long ago. I mean, another, I mean, it's, oh, causation is a problem. When does a crack become big enough <laughs> you know, so that you can say we've got damages? It's
4: difficult. And so you say that even if discretion was existing in the, in the regulations to permit farm agriculture yep. or public utilities, that discretion meant nothing because the city never intended to right. to exercise it in favor of the owner of the property.
3: Correct. And the record reflects that was the approach of the city to not, and of course it was logical because they wanted. This, natural, this water, high-quality water system, which they so, which as I said, I, li- I do like our water. I find Toronto water or wherever a little less desirable. But my going to be fine. That's fine if that's, as a public decision, for the public of Newf- of Saint John's, the city does this. But
4: you well, say pay for it.
3: You yes. say
4: to the city, yes. city, you have the right to do it, but it should not be only my client right. who is the, paying for that.
3: The inconvenient thing here is uh, David Lynch got a crown grant. Uh, Why the legislature let that happen at the same time as this giving? But again, the the breadth of the watershed area may not have been so well known. I don't know. And you have in your record, there are 100 crown grants. Now, some of those people, no one knows where they are and this kind of thing. But there are descendants. There are people who might have title rights. The city didn't deal with this. The 1974 uh, uh, Henley thing, commission report, with a flag, maybe they should have gone ahead and done that. Anyway, that reminds me of another thing. Urban and Rural Planning Act provision, section five, about restricting compensation under that act. If you look at it carefully, it's about restriction of injurious affection, I think, the way it's worded. And it's also, it's about, uh, uh, it's it's not about total loss of property, it's about a loss in value. So I don't think section five applies, and I would suggest it, No one raised that issue, I don't think, and it wasn't ruled on directly, but there's the Sun construction case in Newfoundland, which is another constructive expropriation, and I think that was the area that was paved over by the municipality in that instance, but that was a a claim made under the... Urban and Rural Planning Act provisions, so I don't believe that they apply or are intended to apply. And Section 96 of the Urban and Rural Planning Act about giving a purchase notice, that's all a particular regime to deal with a particular kind of a problem. So I don't think that answers this issue and that, uh, that uh, it stops or would have stopped the lynchers from getting compensation. Mr.
6: Mr. Crosby, let me ask you about the, this antithetical idea, because I guess that's your your big point that even if it theoretically there was a possibility under the 1994 development regulations of a alternative reasonable use, it was, the city took it as impossible, that they weren't gonna let it happen. And the, the, the application judge cites, at she, her paragraph 39, she cites the expropriation decision and she underlines, um, a sentence in that decision that suggests that it that it wasn't impossible, even though, so I'm at paragraph 39 of her decision and citing 62 of the of the expropriation decision, even though some agricultural, forestry, or public utility uses conceivably could, with proper conditions, be compatible with maintaining a sufficient pristine flow of groundwater, city officials. Take the position that the best watershed management plan is to prohibit all activity on the Lynch property. So it was possible. The city at a given point said, even if it's possible, we're not going to let it happen. And it, it, the, your friends on the other side said, that took shape, uh, if I understand their position. 2013, probably, 2011 maybe, but no earlier than 1996, but that certainly that this possibility was there so that the scheme, if we're measuring the scope of the scheme for Point Gourd, that 1994 comes into play and that you can't have it ignored. How how was the application judge on there?
3: We don't have in our record examples Mm -hmm. of people getting approved to have a farm or I cut the trees if I don't want my neighbor to cut these trees. I need a covenant That's why this got to be a title interest, but, uh, but but back to so I'm saying to you if 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 today my clients Asked can we farm this land If they were allowed to farm it there would be a threat To the natural water filter scheme the city had now today is today
6: is after 2013 so I'm not too worried about today I'd be a little more concerned if 1974 that was the the state of play in which case
3: I can only point to the the uh, Watershed report the city had done which is saying this was the practice and You know No one got into questioning when did this practice get going and why or what but I think you we can see w- the why because They they had a natural filter, and they knew or realised if you let farming going on, and that was that that segment of the uh, uh, of that report, Mr Kelly alluded to, which mentions the practice and saying now we shouldn't allow farming, and stuff. I mean, you know, so that 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 was the it was you know hardening, getting tougher, strong. Maybe you'd have got a small farm, but you know what I'm saying. But that was the evolution of the the scheme of the taking. And so back to, you know, I know it's maybe hard, it's a fact question, but in terms of our general concept on expropriation, I don't think that constructive expropriation is any different than than uh, an actual or de jour one, in the sense that once we are under that act, we're now interpreting how that act applies. And that act itself adverts to, what was the, the words, at the beginning of the expropriation? Hmm. Well, that can apply equally, frankly. I disagree with Mr. Kelly. At the beginning. But yeah, at the beginning
7: of when did the damages start? Expropriation proceedings. I mean, I,
3: those, are the, those are the
7: key words.
3: Yes, yeah, so that too is interesting. They had to be forced, didn't they? They didn't issue a notice of expropriation. So what's the beginning? when they're n- not a lot. So that's why I, say, I, I point and the lynches say we started trying in 1990 or their early nineties I think is the actual words used and that and, and in and, uh, 2008 they try having moved out of the city and this kind of thing. So that's why yeah so causation the same kind when did when did it start? Well I think it has its antecedents its, it's genesis. The, these. These these provisions were there and were used and that's why I feel like if we're asking in a general sense What's fair in, what's fair treatment if you what's financial equivalence for these people the lynches? Willis Wallace Reginald Collin and Wilfred Right well what, what did they have and that's why I feel like well, you know in the absence of the scheme if the city had done it a different way what would they have? I think the evidence is indicative of they would have had residential
1: housing. They're not getting a windfall. Mr. Mr. Crosby, I, um, of course, it's up to you and uh, Mr. Critch how you divide your time. Yes, I, I just thought talk I'd talk point out Mr. To, to you. Critch. I'd like to give your, him time. Yeah, 18 minutes thank,
3: left. Thank you, Madam Justice. And, and uh, just uh, have a quick look. I, don't, I think I've, I've said enough. I've ranted long enough. I I will sit down. Uh, Mr. Critch, if you would like to...
12: Thank you, Justices. Um, I'll pick up actually with one of the questions that you had been asking uh, learned colleague uh, that I think has been sort of buzzing behind the entire hearing this entire time. The real question is, what is the extent of the scheme? When did the city take the land here? The Court of Appeal determined that it happened sometime in the 1990s. There was the, essentially the zoning was part of the scheme, and then the combination of the zoning with the policy of not actually allowing discretionary uses. They may have been on the books, they are part of the zoning. But the, the question, which I believe Justice Cassio you pointed toward earlier, is this a genuine discretionary use? Given the city's underlying policy of not allowing development, no. It's not a genuine discretionary use. And that's what the Court of Appeal ultimately found uh, in the, their 2022 decision. And that ultimately is, is what our position is today. The scheme started in 1994 with the zoning provisions. It's solidified on the basis of their underlying policy of not allowing development and then crystallized in 2013. And the crystallization term is, is key and common. It's, it's one we've seen in the Quebec jurisprudence as well uh, and that, that we've used here, the Court of Appeal used it. Uh, and I believe yourself, I believe Justice Martin, you used it as well. Um, in 2013 is a crystallization. It's not a guillotine. Uh, it, it's not a magic date that the city now gets to rely upon even though they were, had to be brought kicking and screaming to get there in the first place. What we need to look at is, is what led to the decision in 2013 that says you cannot develop anything on this property. What led to that decision is more than just the decision itself. It's also the underlying policy of not allowing development, which is reflected in the zoning that restricts it to a few very limited uh, spheres of activity. And the underlying policy, which uh, the 1995 restatement, I believe you have before you, that 1995 restatement is, is essentially the ongoing policy. So the policy existed prior to 1995. We know that. But it's definitely there in 1995, and that's that's abundantly clear. That's why the court of appeal decided uh, what it did.
1: Can I ask you about what the? I mean, I'm afraid to, but ask you about what the evidence uh, was about whether the discretion was ever exercised. Um, Mr. Crosby said there was no evidence that it was exercised. Was there evidence that it was not exercised?
12: I'm not aware of evidence on either side of that issue, Justice. Um, uh, if Mr. Kelly is aware of some, then I he will have a, a moment of reply later, but I, I'm not aware of any instance where development permission was granted.
1: So in, uh, on what basis would the court find that there was a policy um, to never exercise its discretion?
12: Well, it's consistent with the policy that was uh, form- well, set out in 1995 uh, by the city in its own policy directives. Uh, and so that policy, that restatement mentions a continuing policy of not allowing development in the watershed. And that's the city's admitting, acknowledging in 1995, we're not going to allow development. Um, my learned friend, uh, Mr. Kelly, acknowledged essentially earlier that there had to have been something before 2013, which... There, there must have been um, the policy in order, to be, in order to be a justified use of discretionary authority or a denial of discretionary authority, they have to have reasons for that denial. It has to be justified. That denial it was justified on the basis of the underlying policy that had been in place since at least 1995 in, in, in writing and prior to that uh, based on what we see in 1995. Mr. Critch, if, that tr- if that's taking that
5: as, as uh, fact, that uh, wouldn't that just move the expropriation date back it wouldn't get you to evaluation based on residential development for that you'd need to get into a period where residential development was permitted and then excluded so even if you can move that
12: date back it doesn't really get you to where you where your clients want to get we accept the land was the land is in the city of St John's that that is a fact that my clients have tried to deal with but Uh, It it is the the state of the the, the affairs. Um, Given that it is within the city of St. John, some zoning will apply. The zoning that's set out currently is the watershed zoning. We submit that that's part of the scheme. When you exclude that zoning, there's nothing that remains, but there is generally an an underarching. The city would still have a responsibility to zone it. What would the zoning be in the absence of the scheme is, is the unanswered question there and that's really what the public utilities board ultimately decided in setting out the question the way it did they didn't ask what would this be in an unrestricted zoning they're asking if this if this isn't watershed it's residential that's essentially all the parties more or less agreed that residential would be the highest and best use and the likely zoning given again as you mentioned earlier what's directly across the street from this property
4: about the residential use?
12: No, ultimately because the Public Utilities Board had already set out the question in such a way that they didn't need to. Uh, if, it's not, if it's part of the scheme, then, then, then residential is what's left. Residential is what we, we would base the value on in the absence of the scheme.
1: So your answer is that we have to speculate as to how it would have been zoned. But what if the zoning just didn't happen at that point in time? the day before the zoning, what uses were permitted on the land?
12: The day before? The day before the zoning. The day um, before the zoning. There would have been, I'm actually not certain what the city's regulations would have required uh, in 1992, let's say, for instance.
1: There still wasn't the watershed control at the time? There would have been the watershed board. just buildings connected to existing residential, that wasn't in place?
12: The watershed board uh, was in place, but again, with the city of Paradise, Uh, That that eventually there was a deal reached, but nonetheless the property directly across the road
1: I guess I'm trying to get a a sense of the day before the zoning Would residential use have been permitted? It it doesn't seem to me on this record that it would have been that the kind of residence residential um, the the kind of uh, discretion that existed for building was so limited to existing property, but Perhaps I've read it wrong.
12: Well, we've been operating under the, the question as it was set out by the, the Public Utilities Board, which is if it's not in this particular zoning, then it's residential. So that's, that's how we've been operating, as I understand oh,
1: it. Okay, so you just took it that if, if the zoning didn't apply, then it was necessarily residential?
12: Then it was likely that the highest and best use would be residential. That's largely been the agreement of the parties, as I understand it.
1: And you can't answer me exactly what they would have been permitted to do the day before the zoning?
12: It would be hypothetical um, to, to do so, um, but the zoning as, as it existed in the, in the
6: early 1990s was somewhat more amorphous,
12: as I understand it. go
6: back to the 1995-96 problem. They, they, like if I was to ask you, when did the taking occur? If, if it occurred in 1996, let's say that was when the city's refusal uh, of all, all reasonable uses uh, took hold as a policy. Well, suggests that, I don't know, those, the 1994 regulations at the very least, that was on the ground before that refusal took place. What What, what, what allows you to pull the 94 regulations into the scheme on the basis of what Mr. Kelly conceded or if that was a concession.
12: Essentially the the watershed zoning is a particular kind of zoning that has a particular application to particular lands. Most of the city of St. John's is not affected by watershed zoning. They're not in the watershed. The property within the watershed is directly and disproportionately affected by this particular regulation. So it it has a disproportionate effect uh, on the property the Lynch's property being you know a key example. Um, given that, pardon me, given that disproportionate effect and the already existing underlying policy of not allowing development in the watershed, that's why we believe the zoning is a key part of the scheme.
6: Sorry to go back to, so when did the taking occur? I would
12: think the, the combination
6: of the zoning Mm-hmm. And the underlying
12: policy that existed at the time, uh, and that continued and was restated in '95, that that zoning is the moment where the taking,
6: in all practical purposes, occurred. Because it's it, it is paradoxical that the regulation would state there is a possible use of the land, discretion, albeit discretionary, but this is actually a lie. You can't get that use. I mean, that, that just strikes me as uh, uh, odd, but.
12: It it allows the city to do by um, colorable means, which I believe is the term you used earlier, uh, what they would not do directly. And the city had been warned in in 74 that this was a a possibility, um, that what they're doing was tantamount to expropriation. So I would submit that there may have been uh, opinion at the time that if we allow these potential, but not actually potential, discretionary uses, then we're in a situation where we may be able to cover ourselves. But the reality of the situation is, no, you you were not actually able to develop that property at that time. Which is ultimately, I believe, what the Court of Appeal found uh, in their decision. Does that answer your question, Justice?
7: Uh, Can you explain what you say the implications are then for for, uh, uh, the assessing Mm -hmm. of compensation? Do, uh, how does the board go back? And if you say it's residential use, is it residential use in 1995? Like how many houses could be there at now as opposed to the, the kind of application that you put in just recently as a very different looking application? Like I don't understand what, then what residential uh, use might mean in actual uh, concept and value.
12: So, Justice Martin, I would think that it's partly a practical question for the appraisers: What are we? What kind of residential property can we look at here? And we do have you know, the appraisal evidence on that. That was before the Public Utilities Board, and they can sift through that. But on, on a policy question, 2013 is the date that we picked. The Court of Appeal determined that 2013 would be the, the deemed date of taking, and so that's, that's the date that we've worked with as, as the, the date and time.
8: You've got you've got us kind of going in two directions because. You want to rely upon the increase in the property value up to 2013. I'm not going to give evidence here, but I think people would accept that property values rose generally in Canada between the early 90s and 2013. Uh, So you want to take advantage of the 2013 date for the valuation of the property, but you want to kind of reach back and make the taking. Uh, more than roughly a decade before. Whether or not that's a sound proposition, but you're kind of, you're relying on the uh, refusal to allow the discretionary use for the purposes of fixing the date of the taking, but then you want, pardon me, you, you, you rely upon the restrictions on the land use arising from the policy put in place regarding the watershed from the early 90s, but you want to reach forward to the the data, the denial of the discretion for the valuation of the property. And it it just seems difficult to square the two um, because it just leaves us in a state of uncertainty as to what is the relevant date in your submission.
12: It may appear that 20 years is a long time for a scheme for instance. Um, But 2013 is the date picked by the Court of Appeal as the date that the scheme crystallized uh, with respect to the lynch's property. Um, We would submit that, again, uh, in uh, Dupre, which is the Quebec case that we've cited in our factum, they go back 10 years prior to when the the park was initially established. Uh, 10 years, 20 years, the reality is the scheme is whatever it is. The scheme in this case happens to go back into the 1990s. Um, And it it is a difficulty with constructive expropriation because we don't have this de jure notice saying, we are expropriating for this particular purpose. The court has, or the the Public Utilities Board, has to infer uh, to a certain measure, so.
8: But isn't, isn't, isn't it clear from Annapolis that the constructive expropriation, the de facto taking, is when the last reasonable use is extinguished rather than earlier steps which may have regulated the use of the land and perhaps diminished its market value. It's when the last thread is cut, that's the moment. But you're telling us no. Well, again, the, the, the guillotine
12: is, is an inapt analogy when we're looking at constructive expropriation here. It, it doesn't fall sharply and only once, uh, as, as my learned friend would submit. Uh, we are dealing with a project here, um, just as we are with, with regular uh, de jure expropriations. And the project we have to then assess, or the, the court and the, and the public utilities board has to assess, how far back does this project go? What is encompassed in this project? Sometimes I, that I, guess, goes back, my, I? I
8: guess my point is that, That's an interesting proposition, but is that proposition one which squares with what the court said in Annapolis?
12: My understanding with Annapolis there would be that it may cause us to look again at the the date uh, of taking um, if if we were to revise the Court of Appeal, but none of us have been uh, suggesting or looking at changing the the date of taking. What we're looking at here is what gets included in the scheme for taking. So That's our focus rather than on the, the final date.
5: You, you might be right mr. Critch that you can go all the way back but that would make it prima facie very difficult to distinguish legitimate land use planning that uh, we all accept can diminish increase or diminish the value of land zoning up or zoning down isn't actionable that's one on one side and then what you say uh, this is all part of a process you wouldn't be able to distinguish that w- without some finding of uh, as you put it colorability that there was there would need to be a finding that that earlier zoning scheme The whole thing was just a sham. It was put in place, but it was never going to be exercised. It was in bad faith That would be what you would need And I don't think you I mean and you can perhaps point me to where we have that in this record
12: I think I don't think I would want to say that it was done in bad faith But I would say that the zoning scheme in combination with the city's policy, policy of non-development those two factors combine. Um, in 1994, basically, uh, to eliminate all reasonable uses of the property and to the city taking a beneficial interest in the property. Those two factors are the Annapolis factors, and at that point, we do have the factors for constructive taking.
4: So let's say that, this is uh, don't assume anything, but let's say that we come to the conclusion that the Court of Appeal was right to say that uh, the basis of compensation should not be limited by agricultural, forestry, and public utility users. They say that in paragraph 127. But they add, it is theoretically possible that additional users, but not residential ones, would be included. And you say you said that the parties agreed here that the best use would be the residential one. But the Court of Appeal does not seem to be influenced by that because uh, they say that um, whether that, uh, it's so, that is so would depend on interpretation of the city act provisions re- relating to building restrictions, determination of the appropriate date when the land became subject to those restrictions and their effect at that time. So it's not, the Court of Appeal does not uh, hold on this possibility of uh, going ahead with residential use.
12: I would think that the Court of Appeal there is, is trying to speak to other cases. So in this particular instance, where the public utility force had set up the question that it's, it's this or residential, uh, then they would already need to deal with that possibility. They're setting it up as guidance for the other cases in Newfoundland and Labrador that may come about because there are other lands and watersheds. Uh, so that's, that's where I would go with that. As a matter of what development would be permissible, uh, Wiscana, uh, in, in my reading of it, essentially speaks to having a... a a development that is totally outside the realm of what would be expected in an area. If, if we were to propose a, an Amazon distribution facility for this land, th- that wouldn't make sense. There's no distribution facilities. It's not an industrial zone. It's not a commercial high density zone. Um, residential housing that makes a great deal of sense, given what is directly across the road there. I see that my time is almost expired. Uh, are there any further questions, justices?
1: No. Thank you very much. Thank you. Raymond. Good
11: morning or good afternoon, Justices. My name is Shane Raymond, Counsel for the Intervener, the Canadian Home Builders Association. This association intervenes to seek fairness and consistency in expropriation legislation. This will benefit both property owners and statutory authorities. As noted in our factum, the clarity and consistency in the application of the Point Guard rule gives rise to certainty as it relates to the compensation process. Uncertainty creates or has the potential for creating windfalls and shortfalls in compensation, and it may also at times prevent the proper planning of important public undertakings by statutory authorities who require a degree of certainty and predictability with respect to the cost of public works the application of the point gord rule does not favour either a property owner or a statutory authority as certain developments are screened out that enhance value while others are screened out that depress value any direction from this court to ca- clarify the application of the rule would in our submission assist both sides our materials express in greater detail d- express this in greater detail and provide suggestions based on decisions of courts throughout Canada, on how the application of this rule should be clarified and directed, with a focus on when public actions associated with the ultimate taking are known to market participants and affect the value of the impacted land. Our submissions propose the factors that should be considered in determining the Point Gord Rule, based on the actual intention of the authority, the temporal connection between the regulations and the taking, and the causal connection between the two events. Consideration of these factors becomes more relevant in large and complex developments that take place over a long duration and often involve multiple levels of government. The Point Gourd Rule appears to be uniformly applied throughout the common law provinces in Canada and reflects the established common law. Although most provinces have statutes that codify the common law rule, they do not modify it as was the case in the United Kingdom under the Land Compensation Act. The House of Lords in the decision in waters at tab nine of our condensed brief had to grapple with, reconcile and interpret the statutory changes that in our submission substantially modified this common law rule and provide a meaningful distinction between the law in the United Kingdom and the law in Canada. An important foundation of the common law of the point gourd rule recognizes that expropriation is not a single event, but rather a continuing process that evolves over time and culminates in the taking of property. This was articulated in the Dell Holdings decision, which did not focus on the application of the scheme, but where this court gave its endorsement to the decision of the Privy Council in Shengfeng Ironworks which spoke to this issue in the context of the scheme and the shadow period. It is acknowledged that planning decisions and government actions that may lower the value of land are not ordinarily compensable on their own, but a right to compensation arises once a statutory or de facto expropriation occurs. Compensation can then be sought for actions in furtherance of the taking that predate the formal expropriation and consequences that arise from such actions both before and after the taken. Once a de facto or de jure expropriation occurs, compensation is then determined in accordance with the statute that incorporates this important common law principle and screens out the scheme. To frame the issue before this court another way, the public action that gives rise to the de facto expropriation is the straw that breaks the camel's back and the question to be answered is whether to compensate only for the one straw or other related straws that were part of the process that ultimately broke the camel's back. The point gourd rule states that you do not just compensate for the one straw, which is either the actual expropriation or into jury expropriations, the registration of the plan of expropriation, but rather the process that led to the taking, which may involve other straws that were part of the continuing process that led to the taking of land, and that the and the public benefits that flow therefrom. This is the goal in expropriation to ensure that one property owner does not unreasonably shoulder the cost and burden of benefits that are to the public at large. Large. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions.
1: Thank you very much,
11: um, Mr. Kane.
13: Good day, Justices. Uh, The Ontario Landowners Association intervenes in this appeal to make two submissions. First, in defining the scheme that's to be disregarded under the Point GERD principle when assessing the value of expropriated property, the intent of the expropriating authority should not be the primary focus of inquiry in cases where the expropriation is a constructive one. Now, the Court of Appeal held that the critical issue in determining this scheme is the expropriating authority's state of mind, i.e. whether a regulatory act occurred with a view to the development for which the land was expropriated. And it cited several cases in support of this like Kramer and Waters. But it's important to note that all of those cases involved de jure rather than de facto takings. And the reason I say this is important is because in a de jure expropriation, the authority is always going to have an intent to expropriate because by definition, a de jure expropriation can only occur, at least in relation to land, when there's a formal taking of title. And so in that setting, it makes sense to focus on the authority's state of mind in defining the expropriation scheme because the expropriation has to be an intentional act. Now, that is not the case in constructive expropriation cases because in Annapolis, this court held that the public authority's intention is not an element of the test for constructive takings. The court said instead that the mischief that is addressed by the doctrine is one of advantages and effects, and that intention is neither necessary or sufficient. And so a constructive taking can occur without any intent by the expropriating authority to bring one about. And that means that there can be constructive taking cases where it's not going to be possible that's to do that. That's
8: each... one way to read it. The other way to read it is that uh, it is not necessary to demonstrate intent to make out the uh, uh, constructive expropriation. In other words, you don't have to have the minutes of a secret meeting which say, uh, we're now about to take this person's land away but pretend we're not going to do it. I mean, it, 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 it really went, it seems to me, to, to, to what it is you have to demonstrate and, and the practical problems of proof.
13: Well, Justice Rowe, thank you for that question. Um, obviously, I defer to this court on how best to, to read Annapolis, but I would say, based on the way that the judgment is written, it says quite plainly that intention is not, quote, an element of the test. And so intention may be relevant as an evidentiary matter, as the court, as the majority recognized, but it is not a necessary or sufficient requirement for a constructive expropriation, is what the court held.
5: But you went further and said, Mr. Kane, you went further and said it's not not even a consideration. Surely if there is a secret memo in a drawer that says we're going to allow uh, in the regulation agricultural utility and farming, but we're never going to grant the discretion surely that would be relevant to move the date back for the expropriation to the date of the promulgation of the regulation rather than the date w- when um, a request to engage in farming activity was refused. So it may be relevant in some cases. It's not to say that it's relevant in all cases, but surely both the, 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 the purpose uh, or the intent uh, and effect of the scheme – the, the, the regulation that constitutes part of the scheme, surely it has to be something that the court can consider.
13: Justice Jamal, I agree with that. And we do say at paragraph 20 of our factum that for the purposes of assessing compensation value, intention may be relevant to the inquiry. Um, So I, I I don't intend to say, and I said earlier that it shouldn't be the primary focus. I don't intend to say that it should be no part of the focus, but I do intend to say that there may be cases in which there simply is not an intention and that follows necessarily from the structure of the cause of action as articulated in Annapolis. And I'm simply trying to suggest that in those cases where intention is not a, a component of the uh, acts that gave rise to constructive expropriation, this court is going to need to formulate a, a way of defining the scheme for the purposes of Point Gourd that goes beyond an inquiry into intent. And my proposition is this, it's a simple one. <clears throat> the way to do that is to focus not only on whether or not the regulatory act was necessary for the removal of all uses, but also to focus on whether or not a regulatory act was necessary for the advantage that the public authority acquired. And there may be cases in which it's necessary for the one and not for the other. And in my submission, necessity to both of those elements can 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 ground um, the 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 inclusion of the instrument uh, or regulatory act within the, uh, the scheme to be excluded from Point Gourd. I you. did have one further submission. I see my time is up, but I'm happy to make it to Justice DeMaul's question earlier about going back to the state of nature. I'm in the panel's hands as to whether you'd like me well, to make if that you, submission.
1: if you can answer briefly.
13: <clears throat> so, I would say um, that the concern about going back to the state of nature arises if we were to say that you had to have a test that would require that you would remove every single link in the legal chain that led to the ultimate removal of uses or an advantage and I say that can be managed by requiring that the regulatory act that is um, excluded be directly rather than indirectly necessary for the removal of uses or advantage to occur so if the only reason why a regulatory act is necessary is because it provided enabling authority for a subsequent regulatory act then it's only indirectly necessary for the removal of uses or the advantage and in that setting it shouldn't be part of the scheme. It should only be part of the scheme if, if you were to remove it as a link from the chain, then the removal of the uses or advantage wouldn't occur for reasons other than the simple fact that a later, later regulatory act that was
1: necessary to the removal couldn't have occurred. Thank you, Mr. Kane. <clears throat> uh, reply. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, I, have
6: a, I have a question for Mr. Kelly. Would, is that permitted? Yes, yes. So, so Mr. Critch suggested that when in, in uh, response to the question, when did the taking uh, come to pass, um, he suggested that the s- scheme, the scope of the scheme was such that it would extend back to, from 2013, so he mentioned 1995 as a date where a policy became uh, absolutely plain that, notwithstanding the puff that discretionary uh, uses, agricultural, f- forestry, and public utility were possible on the books, they were not possible in practice. And he went quite far and said that, uh, suggesting, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that it might have been in some measure disingenuous to think that 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 was uh, the true policy uh, of the city, notwithstanding the puff that was in the development regulations of 1994. And thus, for him, the scheme for the Point Gourd purpose uh, extends back captures 1994 and must be ignored uh, as, as part of the taking. What is your response to that?
2: Uh, I, I'd respond with, with a couple of points. First, as I developed in the argument, it's important to remember how the development regulations came into effect. They were part of a comprehensive land use planning process with public hearings, public notice, et cetera. So all of those vetting issues had to take place during that that process. So the suggestion that there was some nefarious step afoot to do something which was then never going to be utilized uh, is is not demonstrated anywhere in the record. The second comment I'd make is that when you then look at the 1996 Watershed Management Plan and that section 2.5 that I took you to, It starts with the the statement that the existing policy of not allowing urban use, well, urban use is not what's in, what is permissible or what could be authorized under the um, watershed zoning. So the evidence which is in the record demonstrates that that the watershed zoning bylaw was put in place for proper purposes in accordance with a statutory uh, comprehensive land use zoning process and that later then restrictions got imposed. So in my submission, there is no basis to go back and take out the watershed uh, zoning as part of some uh, scheme. The the last comment I, I would make is the point gourd principle itself is not per se about taking out regulations. That takes you to the area of law that is dealt with in Hartel and cases like that. What the point guard principle does is take out the, any difference in value from a, uh, a work, a development for which... Expropriation or the acquisition of the property is required, so you'd have to you have to ask yourself, well, when was the acquisition of the property required? And it's really not in this case not required until 2013, when there is an application and the city manager then makes his decision, and that's the the decision of the court of appeal in the expropriation decision.
6: So exactly, so in the expropriation decision, at paragraph 62, quoted by the application judge, where the, uh, the Court of Appeal in 2016 speaks of, of some agricultural, forestry, or public utility uses that could conceivably, under the proper conditions, be compatible with maintaining the pristine uh, flow of w- groundwater, your position is um, the fact that they were possible, whether or not they were granted, means that discretion was real and would fall outside of the scheme.
2: Yes, and under the, the very terms of the watershed zone, uh, it lists the discretionary uses, and then the last item in it, it's in, in my condensed book, is an environmental impact uh, uh, assessment is required.
1: Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you, Justice.
1: Thank you very much. The uh, court will uh, take the decision under reserve. Thank you, counsel, for your submissions.